Well, hello again, Center Street Church. Um, before I begin my message, I, I just want you to know that I received good news on my health from my doctor this past week. I had a CT scan done a couple of weeks ago, and it indicated that there is no more evidence of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in my body. Thank be to God. We are humbled, and we are so grateful to God for answering our prayer and also for your faithful support and prayers. Going forward, please continue to pray that my body would remain healthy and particularly for God's protection over this next year as my immune system will still be compromised. So again, thank you for your love and support and prayers. We're so blessed to be part of this church. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we just... Um, Praise you for who you are, the God of creation, the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. Thank you for all that you do, and thank you for your word, Lord, that you've reached out to us through your word. And I ask that you would now focus our minds as we open it, and as again we seek to understand what it is you're saying to us. Lord, may we ask, what is it, Lord, you're saying to me today, and may we have the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, some time ago, I talked with a man who was very discouraged. In his late teens and his early 20s, he had such high hopes for his life. But now, everything was unraveling. He had lost his job. His marriage was on life support. His children were, were not in a good place at all. And even his health was deteriorating. He said, you know, Pastor, there are times I find myself doubting God, whether, whether he really cares, whether his promises are true, or at least whether they're true for me. He said, I, I look around, and it seems like Satan is winning, and God is nowhere to be found. And you know something, Pastor? As a Christian, I, I feel awful admitting that to you. In fact, sometimes I question whether I'm a Christian at all because I wrestle with these doubts and thoughts. So let me ask you, can you identify with this fellow? Are there times that you doubt the character or the promises of God or whether he really cares about you at all? Well, if you're in a season of doubt, I'm confident that our study today is going to encourage you and provide hope and direction for you going forward. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to invite you to turn to our next scripture lesson in chapter 12. Now, a little background. In the first 10 chapters, Matthew has introduced us to the teachings and the power and the disciples of Jesus. He's been compiling testimony as if he were in a court of law to prove that Jesus is the Lord, the King, and the promised Messiah of God. And, and now as we come to chapter 11, it becomes immediately apparent to us that Matthew's purposes change. Having made his claims about Christ in the first 10 chapters, in chapters 11 and 12, Matthew records 
how some people reacted to Jesus, to his ministry, and also to his claims. And the first person that we're introduced to is John the Baptist, who appears to be having doubts about Jesus being the Messiah. So look at verse 1. And join me in reading this. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, as we'll see in a moment, this was an unusual question coming from John. Let me explain what I mean by providing a little background to this particular incident that we just read together. Turn back to Matthew 3, where we read about the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew tells us that John was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and that people from all over uh, went to hear uh, him preach. And, uh, and many repented of their sins and were baptized by John. And when people asked him if he was the Christ, if he was the Messiah, John flat out said no, that the Christ was still to come. Look at verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John knew who Jesus was. When Jesus approached John to be baptized, John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A little later, John added this, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John clearly believed Jesus to be the Messiah. He also knew that his God given calling was to tell everyone about Jesus and to prepare them for his coming. Which presents a troubling question. How could John, who was so certain about Jesus, now harbor such doubt? Well, our scripture text doesn't give us a direct answer to this question, but it does give us some clues. To begin with, John was facing difficult circumstances. John was thrown in prison, not for breaking the law, but for rebuking King Herod for using his power to take and to marry his brother's wife. And the prison that he was in didn't have three meals a day, a workout area, and an air-conditioned library. No, the historian Josephus tells us that Herod had him imprisoned in the fortress of Machaerus, which is located in the, in the desert on the northeastern side of the Dead Sea. And if you've ever been there or been near there, you know that even though it isn't the end of the world, you can see it from there. So there he was in a dark, hot dungeon that was little more than a slimy pit in the middle of that bleak desert. For nearly two years, John had been in the limelight. He was immensely popular, and many 
were signing up to be his disciples. He was a free spirit who for years lived and enjoyed wide open spaces, teaching and boldly proclaiming the truth of God in the wilderness. But more than that, he was also a holy, selfless, and faithful servant. He did exactly what God called him to do all his life. He had lived under the Nazarite vow, which is the highest vow of dedication a Jewish man could take. He sacrificed everything that we would consider to be part of a normal life in order to fulfill his calling from God. And now he was confined within the four dirt walls of a dungeon, physically and emotionally drained and totally alone. I mean, was this his reward? Was this it? To be forgotten in a slimy hole in the ground and enduring shame and hunger, physical torment and loneliness? Have you ever had a season like this? Can you identify with some of the thoughts and feelings that John may have had? Perhaps you're facing a debilitating storm in your life right now. The reality is difficult circumstances and hardships can weaken even the most devoted Christian and cause us to doubt and to question God. When a Christ follower has faithfully and sacrificially served the Lord for many years and then receives, for example, a life-threatening health report or experiences a series of hardships and setbacks, it's difficult not to doubt God. It's difficult to sing it is well with my soul because we know that things are not well. When a child is lost to death or to unbelief or a spouse leaves or our business unravels or we lose our job, We're tempted to ask, God, where are you? Why have you let this happen to me? Why are you silent? Why won't you help me? When our world falls apart, it's pretty normal to wonder about the character and the love of God and to fall into the ditch of doubt. Secondly, John may have doubted because he was disappointed with Jesus. Notice in verse 2, it says, while he was in prison, John heard about the deeds of the Messiah. And this perplexed him. It confused him because in his mind, what Jesus was doing just didn't line up with his understanding of what the Messiah should be doing. You see, John grew up attending temple services, listening to the rabbis teach about the coming Messiah. He had read all of the prophets, including Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he concluded that the Messiah was going to come with justice and make all the wrongs in the world right. We read in Matthew 3 that John challenged people to repent. He warned the religious leaders to flee from the wrath to come. And John wasn't alone in this way of thinking about the Messiah. Even though John and the Jewish people knew the prophecies from Isaiah 35 and also from Isaiah 61 that Jesus quotes in verse 5 which tell us about the Messiah healing the sick and feeding the hungry and ministering to the poor 
They believed that when the Messiah came, his first priority would be to get rid of their oppressors, the Romans, and give them back their cherished land and freedom. They believed only after Jesus had taken care of the Romans and wiped out all the evil and the nasty people and all the nasty systems that he, that, that he, it would be then that he would focus on eliminating uh, the suffering, the disease, and the hunger. And yet from John's perspective, Jesus had brought little change to the brutal uh, political and military systems of Rome or the corrupt religious system in Israel. In, instead of bringing judgment, John heard that Jesus was healing people and dining with tax collectors and turning water into wine. In short, John was disappointed with Jesus because Jesus' ministry wasn't at all what he expected, which left him doubting whether Jesus was the Messiah at all. Now, to be clear, it wasn't that John's biblical understanding of the Messiah was wrong. It was just incomplete. He focused on those passages that described the Messiah coming in judgment. And he didn't give much thought to the prophecies describing the Messiah's ministry of grace and mercy. By the way, that is why the apostles could not accept that Jesus had to die. Why Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus told them that uh, he was going to suffer and die. Like John, the disciples had an incomplete understanding of what the Old Testament prophecies said about the Messiah. They pictured the Messiah as their military champion, not as a servant who would wash their feet and die on a cross one day. So look how Jesus responded to John in verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus was saying, John you have to acknowledge all of the prophecies about the Messiah, even the ones that seem less important to you right now. You have to see the whole picture of who I am. I'm much more than you thought the Messiah was going to be. I am both justice and mercy. And so it is, and so it, it is uh, his complete understanding of what the Messiah was going to do that left him disappointed and in doubting whether Jesus was in fact the Messiah. So let me ask you, have you ever found yourself doubting God or being disappointed with God? You prayed that that loved one would be healed, but they died. And you found yourself doubting God's character and asking him hard questions like, Lord, you said you're the God of healing. Lord, you said by your stripes we are healed. Why did this person die? And doubt begins to creep in. 
Or perhaps you look around and you see ungodly people who don't believe in God. You see them prospering while you love the Lord and you've dedicated your life to serving the Lord and instead of prospering, you're languishing and facing one hardship or one disappointment after another and you wonder, Lord, are you really for me? Do, you, do your promises really apply to, to, to me? When God doesn't act or respond the way that we think that he should, it's pretty easy for doubt and for disappointment to steal over us and for our faith to weaken. So how can we defeat doubt when it surfaces in our lives? Well, this event in John's life here in our scripture lesson provides us with a, a few helpful principles for defeating doubt in our lives. First of all, when doubt comes, lean on God. John didn't suppress his doubts. No, he went directly to Jesus through his disciples and he asked for help. Some people, they suppress their doubts or, or don't talk about them because they believe that their doubts reveal that they aren't really Christians. But as we've seen in the case of John the Baptist, sometimes the most committed Christ followers face doubt in their lives. Even the disciples doubted when Jesus was crucified. And Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection until he was able to see him and touch him in person. Now notice how Jesus responded to John's doubt. He didn't say to John's disciples, well, you know, tell John that I am so ashamed and disappointed in him. I can't believe after all I've done that he actually doubts me. No, Jesus didn't say that at all. Rather than rebuking John for doubting, Jesus not only affirmed him as a great prophet, but in verse 11, he referred to him as the greatest human being ever born. You know, folks, if we want to grow through our doubts, it's important that we understand that doubt is not sinful or wrong. It's normal, even for the most committed Christian. Now, having said that, it's important that we distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Alistair McGrath says, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for, even if there is evidence to the contrary. Doubt is not unbelief, but it can become unbelief if we don't deal with it in a right way. If we become obsessed with doubt and we don't seek answers to our doubts, our doubts will, will slowly erode our faith and neutralize our passion for God and our obedience to God. We'll become like the person who says that he believes uh, in the God of the Bible, but just goes through the religious motions and lives as if God doesn't exist. So here's the thing. If we feed our doubts, our faith will starve. On the other hand, if we feed our faith, our doubts will starve and ultimately fade away. And so the key 
to preventing doubt from turning into unbelief is to refuse to let our doubt define us and instead lean on God and be open and honest about our doubt, um, asking for his help. You know, church, God is not fragile. He created the universe and he runs it and he holds it all together without your help or my help. He can handle your doubts, your questions, and also your fears. So tell him your doubts. Cry out to him for his help. Ask him to give you wisdom. Ask him to give you more faith. Now many people struggle with whether they have enough faith. Most torment themselves actually um, over having too little of it. They are certain that their lack of faith is the reason for unanswered prayer. Uh, the reason for spiritual weakness or spiritual dryness or a sense of just being distant from God. When people wrestle with doubt, they may tell themselves that they will try harder to have more faith. But faith is not the sort of thing that can be acquired by trying harder. No, faith comes by getting to know God better. The better you know God, the more you will see life and your life from his perspective and the more you will trust him and the way to get to know and trust God more is by leaning on him spending time alone with him in the scriptures in solitude but also in stepping out in faithful obedience to what he calls you to do and as you move closer to him and as you trust him and step out in faith he will use your act of faith and obedience to grow your faith step by step and your doubts will diminish step by step. And so the first key to defeating doubt is to lean on God. The second key is to lean on others. Even though John was in prison, he didn't isolate himself, but he kept uh, a close contact in close contact with his disciples. Sometimes we find it even harder admitting that we have doubts to other people than to God. And yet if we want to use our doubts to grow our faith rather than erode our faith, we must not travel uh, the road of doubt alone. I mean, even Jesus on the night that he was arrested, the night that he was agonizing and pleading with God to let the horror that he was about to experience on the cross to let it pass on that night he asked his disciples to be with him to pray with him in his book stories for the journey William R. White he tells the true story of a European seminary professor named Hans and his wife Enad World War II forced them to flee to America where he found a job teaching. He was a warm gentleman who was loved by his students and he brought the scripture to life for them. Hans and Ened were very much in love. Nearly every day they took long walks together holding hands and they always sat close in church. But then tragically... Ened suddenly died one day, overwhelming Hans with deep sorrow. Worried because he wouldn't eat 
nor take any walks, the seminary president, along with three other friends, began visiting with him regularly. But he remained alone and depressed. Experiencing the dark night of the soul, Hans told his friends, I am no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. After a moment of silence, the seminary president said, well then, we will believe for you. We will make your confession for you. We will pray for you. And so the four men met daily for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their dear friend. Many months later, as the four gathered with Hans, he smiled and he said, it is no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today, I would like to pray with you. The dark night of the soul had passed. Instead of carrying Hans to Jesus on a stretcher, his friends carried him in their prayers and in their presence in his life. When, when doubts cause you to go through a dark night of the soul, I want to challenge you to be humble enough to reach out and lean on and find strength from the faith of others, a trustworthy friend or two with strong faith. A third key to defeating doubt is to lean on God's word. Now, earlier in the message, I explained that a major reason that John doubted Jesus and asked him if he was the one, if he was the Messiah, is because Jesus wasn't doing the things that John expected him to be doing. And the reason John came to that conclusion is because, like most of the Jewish people of his day, he chose to focus on and give priority to the prophecies that spoke about the justice and the judgment uh, that the Messiah would bring and ignore or minimize the prophecies that spoke about the grace and mercy that the Messiah would bring. And so in, in, in verse 4, when Jesus told John's disciples, you tell John that the blind receive sight, that the lame walk and the deaf hear, he used those words not so much to describe the miracles he had performed and that John already knew about, but to show John from the scriptures that his ministry of grace, of healing and mercy was also a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah. You see, Jesus was really telling John, even though I may not be following the script that you expected the Messiah to be living out right now, I want you to know that I am fulfilling the prophecies of God's word. And therefore, in respect to your, your question, John, yes, I am the Messiah. You see, Jesus didn't come to judge the unrighteousness of the world like John was expecting. No. Jesus came to be judged on behalf of a guilty world, you and me. And God's, <clears throat> and God's justice was satisfied and the victory was won through Christ's death and resurrection. The truth is, Christianity never... Um, will meet your expectations if your expectations are wrong. 
You will always be disappointed with God if you have an inaccurate or untruthful picture of who God is. Some people <clears throat> want Jesus to be like Santa Claus. They just want Jesus to give them whatever they want. And there are a lot of preachers out there who teach that. God wants everyone to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. But they are teaching an incomplete gospel. I mean, I really wish that I could tell you on the basis of Scripture that if you embrace Jesus and follow him with full devotion, that you will experience the good life as our society sees it, of course, including a great income, the spouse you always wanted, the nice house, and the white picket fence, and that you won't have any problems. But that is simply not true. Unless you want to lean on your own understanding rather than on the word of God. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. The fact is, sometimes life is really hard. Sometimes things will happen in your life that don't make any sense or will seem completely unfair. And you will find yourself having feelings of disappointment with God and doubting his goodness. And, and, you, will have, and you will have to make a choice. You can choose to lean into God's word and embrace what it says about God's character and his kingdom. Or you can reject it and you can walk away because you're unprepared to believe and to follow the truth of the scriptures. You see, we have a tendency to shape Jesus into our own image to kind of pick and choose from the scriptures the parts and the pieces we want Jesus to be for us instead of embracing the Jesus who is as he revealed himself to be in the Bible. Even when we listen to a sermon, you know, we tend to have selective hearing. And, and to our shame, we respond to the sermon by rating how good it was rather than sincerely asking, Lord, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do about it? And then stepping out in obedience and doing it. And when we read the Bible, we tend to do selective reading as well. Highlighting passages that say what we want to hear and agree with. And ignoring passages we don't want to deal with. In verse 11 and 14, Jesus says, You need to understand, John, that your idea of what my kingdom will be like is pretty much the opposite of what you've been thinking. My kingdom isn't based on your performance. No, the greatest in my kingdom will be the humble and those who serve sacrificially without thought of reward. And that's why in verse 6, Jesus said this, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, blessed is the person who chooses to believe in me and what they see me doing on the authority of God's holy word rather than on the basis of their incomplete or inac inaccurate understanding of the scriptures or on the basis of who they simply want or wish me to be for their own sake. And so church, here's the thing. If we wish to defeat doubt in our lives, then we must lean on God's word 
in at least two ways. First of all, we, we must study the scriptures and hear the systematic teaching of scripture the way you are right now so that we know the whole truth of the scriptures and what it says about life and eternity and therefore will be equipped to avoid being seduced into believing and living a cultural and politically correct version of Christianity. And secondly, we must trust in the authority of the scriptures and the whole counsel of God, even if it means following Jesus will be hard and costly and our circumstances and our expectations don't align with what the Bible says. You know, as I was studying this passage, it hit me that Jesus didn't rescue John from prison or from being executed. Now, we don't know why until we get to the next life. What we do know is that God is sovereign, and he's in control, and he's totally trustworthy. And we also know that in the end, Jesus' words and actions satisfied John's doubts, for even though John's circumstances never changed, and he was ultimately executed, We read in Matthew chapter 14 that after John's death, his disciples came and he took his body away. They buried it and then they went and reported to Jesus. Now, why did they report and submit to Jesus? Because John fully believed Jesus and in Jesus and called his disciples to follow him. And church, if we wish to defeat doubt in our lives and grow in our faith, then we too must choose to lean on God's word and study it and hear it taught faithfully and take God at his word and surrender to its truth even when our experience flies in the face of the truth. And then finally, we can defeat doubt by acting on our faith and refusing to quit. In verse 7, we read this. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, I want you to notice the passage says that John's disciples were leaving when Jesus gave these words of praise for John, which means they not only heard what he said, but would have told John what Jesus said about him. And the message that Jesus was conveying to John was essentially this. If I was to summarize the passage we just read together. John, I want you to know that your commitment and your service to God has not 
gone unnoticed. Your ministry was powerful and it impacted many people because you were totally authentic. You served humbly and faithfully. You weren't motivated by money or fine clothes or the temporary things of life. You are the real deal, John. In verse 9, Jesus went on to say, John, lest there be any doubt, I also affirm your calling as a prophet. You are the one that Malachi prophesied about, the messenger who would go ahead of me and prepare the way before me. And I also want you to know, John, that because of your humility and your sacrifice, you are the greatest human being who ever lived. Now, why did Jesus say all, this wonderf- all these wonderful things to John and about John? I believe it was to encourage him to not act on his doubts, to not pull away from fulfilling his prophetic uh, calling, but rather to act on his faith, on his convictions, and all he knew to be true, and to not give up. And I believe the Lord wants to say the same thing to us when we struggle with doubt. You see, struggling with doubt does not mean that we lack faith in God. Struggling with doubt indicates we actually have faith and actually provides the opportunity for us to grow in our faith. So when you find yourself overcome with doubt, see it as a process of building your faith and keep on going. Keep leaning on God and others and use your doubts to motivate you to find answers in the scriptures or from others. Act on your faith and not your doubts. That's what Abraham did when he offered Isaac. It's what Moses did when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. It's what David did when when he faced Goliath. And it's what Daniel did when he faced the lions. Job, he lost everything he owned and almost his entire family. His friend said, Job, it's, it's, it's your fault. His wife said, God's the problem, so curse him and die. She was most encouraging. And even though Job was filled with grief and poured out his hurt to God and his anger and his questions, in the end, he refused to let go of his faith in God. He tenaciously hung on to his belief that God is both sovereign and good. All these giants of faith that we read about in Scripture undoubtedly had doubts, but they decided to trust God and to step out and act on their faith rather than their doubts. And if we do the same, our faith in God will grow stronger and our relationship with God will grow deeper. You know, I can still remember vividly the day that my doctor told me at the age of 22 that I had cancer and there was a high probability that I wouldn't live very long. For days, I struggled with doubt and feelings of hopelessness. And then in desperation and frustration, I finally told the Lord exactly how I felt. And I just flat out told him that I needed more faith. And even though I, I can't tell you exactly how, how it all happened, but over the weeks that followed, 
God used his word. He used our church family. Um, he used his spirit to somehow bolster my faith and bless me with his precious peace. And as you know, since then, I've had two more bouts with cancer. And each time my faith was tested with all kinds of doubts and feelings of uncertainty. And during those times, when I found it difficult putting my trust in Christ, I discovered that I was a prisoner to my feelings. I mistakenly thought that I could not trust God unless I felt like trusting him, which I almost never did during the tough times. Well, even though I'm, I'm not there yet, over all these years I've been learning that trusting God is, first of all, a matter of the will. It's a decision. It is choosing to believe God and his word rather than waiting until uh, I feel like trusting God. You, you see, true faith includes more than just knowing the truth and agreeing with it. True faith involves your will. It involves choosing to surrender to the truth and acting out that truth in your talk and in your walk. That's what King David did in times of doubt and distress. In Psalm 56, 3 and 4, David admitted that he was afraid. He was not cocky or arrogant, but despite his fear, he said to God, I will trust in you. I will not be afraid. We must choose to trust God and our feelings will eventually follow. Regardless of how you're feeling or, or, or what's happening to you or around you, choose to believe that God is at work in your situation, that his way is perfect, and that he has your best interests at heart. Even when nothing makes sense, tell the Lord, God, I... I don't understand, but I choose to trust you because you are totally trustworthy. So when you're in a dark valley, having a dark night of the soul, when you're feeling overwhelmed with doubt and you're discouraged, keep on walking. You will gain absolutely nothing staying in the valley of darkness. The only way is to keep on keeping on, believing that you are not alone, but that Christ is walking with you. And then just one more thought as I close. You know, in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, we read that after hearing some of the hard teaching of Jesus, many of Jesus' followers packed up their suitcase and they left. They stopped following him. And in verse 68, Jesus turned to his apostles and he asked, do you want to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter asks a question that we must all consider in times of difficulty and doubt. Lord, if, if we leave you, to whom shall we go? If not you, Jesus, what else or who else would I turn to? Church, here's the thing. 
If you step away from Jesus, you step towards someone or towards something else. And I ask you, who or what would that be? If not Jesus, then who? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you step away from him, all that remains is darkness. That is the alternative that you, that you face. Yes, you will have seasons of doubt. But do not let your doubt take you out. I, for one, choose to put my hope and trust in Jesus and him alone. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? Let's just take a moment right now and let's apply what we've learned from the scriptures by asking, Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what do you want me to do about it?